American Holocaust by David E. Stannard. Chapter 5 There is a moment in Toni Morrison's moving novel, Beloved, when Stamp Paid, a black man in the mid-19th century American South, notices something red stuck to the bottom of his flatbed boat as he is tying it up alongside a riverbank. It was a particularly bad time for, for black folk in a century of particularly bad times for them. White folks were still on the loose, writes Morrison. Whole towns wiped clean of Negroes. 87 lynchings in one year alone in Kentucky. Four colored schools burned to the ground. Grown men whipped like children. Children whipped like adults. Black women raped by the crew. Property taken, necks broken. And the smell of skin, skin, and hot blood. Cooked in a lynch fire. Was everywhere. At first, when he saw the red thing stuck to his boat, Stampe thought it was a feather. Reaching down to retrieve it, he tugged, and what came loose in his hand was a red ribbon knotted around a curl of wet woolly hair, clinging still to its bit of scalp. He untied the ribbon and put it in his pocket, dropped the curl in the weeds. On the way home, he stopped short of breath and dizzy. He waited until the spell passed before continuing on his way. A moment later, his breath left him again. This time, he sat down by a fence. Rested, he got to his feet, but before he took a step, he turned to look back down the road he was traveling and said, to the frozen mud in the river beyond, What are these people? You tell me, Jesus, what are they? It is a question many have asked many times during the course of the past millennium. What were those people whose minds and souls so avidly fueled genocides against Muslims, Africans, Indians, Jews, Gypsies, and other religious, racial, and ethnic groups? What are they who continue to such wholesale slaughter still today? It is tempting when discussing the actions described in the two preceding chapters, as well as genocide some other times and places, to describe the behavior of the crimes as perpetrators as insane. But as Terence Desprez once pointed out with regard to the Nazis' attempted mass extermination of Europe's Jews, demonic seems a better word than insane to characterize genocidal behavior. Desprez's semantic preference here he said, was based upon the sense that insanity is without firm structure, not predictable, something you cannot depend upon. And while what went on in the Nazi killing centers was highly organized and very de dependable indeed, thereby not qualifying it as insanity, at least according to this press's informal definition, the dedication of life's energies to the production of death is a demonic principle of the first degree. Despres continued on in this essay to distinguish between the Nazi effort to extinguish from the earth Europe's Jewish population and other examples of genocide from the thick history of mankind's human inhumanity, including the slaughter of the American Indians. The difference he found was that the destruction of the European Jews had no rational motive whatsoever, neither politics nor plunder, all these is black people, though. Black Europeans, the American Indians, is us. This was genocide for the sake of genocide. Had this press pursued these distinctions, exterminating all 
original people on all land masses as he was with Europeans. He may well have realized that his poisoned contrasts were more apparent than they were real. On the one hand, much, though not all, of the European and American slaughter of American Indians from 15th century Hispaniola to 16th century Peru to 17th century New England to 18th century Georgia to 19th century California was not driven by reasons of politics or plunder, nor by military strategy or blind expediency, but by nothing more than, to use Despres's phraseology, genocide for the sake of genocide. On the other hand, much, though not all, of the Nazi slaughter of Europe's Jews was driven by what the perpetrators of that Holocaust regarded as rational motives, however perverse or bizarre or sick or hateful those motives appear to others. To say this is not to say that the Jewish Holocaust, the inhuman destruction of six million people, was not an abominably unique event. It was. So too, for reasons of its own, was the mass murder of about a million Armenians in Turkey a few decades prior to the Holocaust. So too was the deliberately caused terror famine in, in Stalin's Soviet Union in, in the 1930s, which killed more than 14 million people. So too Black people. have been each of the genocidal slaughters of many millions more decades after the Holocaust in Burundi, Bangladesh, Kampuchea, East Timor, the Brazilian Amazon, and elsewhere. Additionally, within the framework of the Holocaust itself, there were aspects that were unique in the campaign of the genocide conducted by the Nazis against Europe's Romani or Gypsy people, which resulted in the mass murder of, of perhaps 1.5 million men, women, and children. Of course, there, were, are, there also were the unique horrors of the African slave trade, during which the, the course of at least 30 million, and possibly as many as 40 million to 60 million Africans were killed, most of them in the prime of their lives, before they even had a chance to begin working as human shadows. But Hawaii getting reparations for Americans. Holocaust, though. That's in why that is burned down. There is the That's why it's burning. Of this book, the total extermination of many American Indian peoples and the near extermination of others, in numbers that eventually total close to 100 million. They didn't wipe us all out, though. Each it, of these genocides was distinct and unique, for one reason or another, as were and are others that go unmentioned here. Pay attention. Ours is the American the Indian. They make it unique. In, an, in another case, the percentage of people killed may make it unique. In a still different case, the greatly compressed time period in which the genocide took place may make it unique. In a further case, the greatly extended time period in which the genocide took place may make it unique. No doubt the targeting of a specific group or groups for extermination by a particular nation's official policy may mark a given genocide as unique. So too might another group's as being unofficially targeted for elimination by the actions of a multinational phalanx bent on total extirpation. Certainly, the chilling utilization of technological instruments of destruction, such as gas chambers and its assembly line, bureaucratic systematic methods of destruction, make the Holocaust unique. On the other hand, the savage employment of non-technological instruments of destruction, such as the unleashing of trained and hungry dogs to devour infants, and the burning and crude hacking to death of the inhabitants of entire cities, also makes the Spanish anti-Indian genocide unique. 
a list of distinctions marking the uniqueness of one or another group that has suffered from genocidal mass destruction or near or total extermination could go on at length. Additional problems emerge because of a looseness in the terminology commonly used to describe categories and communities genocidal victims. A traditional Eurocentric bias that lumps undifferentiated mass masses of Africans into one single category and undifferentiated masses of Indians in while making fine distinctions among the, the different populations of Europe permits the ignoring of cases in which genocide against Africans and American Indians has resulted in the total extermination purposefully carried out of entire cultural, social, religious, and ethnic groups. A secondary tragedy of all these genocides more is that partisan representatives among these survivors of groups not uncommonly hold up their people's experience as so fundamentally different from the others that not only is scholarly comparison of hand, but mere cross-referencing or discussion other than the context of the one is prohibited. It is almost as though the preemptive conclusion that one's own group has suffered more than others is something of a horrible award of distinction that will be diminished if the true extent of another group's suffering is acknowledged. Compounding this secondary tragedy is the fact that such insistence on the incomparability of one's own historical suffering, by means of what Irving Lewis Horowitz calls moral bookkeeping, invariably pits one terribly injured group against another, as in the all too frequent contemporary disputes between Jews and African Americans, or the recent controversy over the U.S. Holocaust Memorial. In that particular struggle, involving the exclusion or exclusion of gypsies from the memorial program, tensions reached such a pitch that the celebrated Jewish Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal was driven to write to the Memorial Commission in protest over the omission of gypsies from the program, arguing that they too deserved commemorative recognition since the gypsies had been murdered in a proportion similar to the Jews, about 80% of them in the area of the countries which were occupied by the Nazis. Although Wiesenthal's willingness to extend a hand of public recognition and commiseration to fellow victims of, of one of history's most monstrous events was typical of him, and today's support solicitations for the Holocaust Memorial Museum point out that Jehovah's Witnesses, the physically and mentally handicapped, homosexuals, gypsies, Soviet prisoners of war, and others also were targets of the Nazi extermination effort. It was an unusual act in the context of these sorts of controversies. Denial of massive death counts is common, and even readily understandable, if contemptible, among those whose forefathers were the perpetrators of the genocide. Such denials have at least two motives. First, protection of the moral reputations of those people in that country responsible for the genocidal activity, which seems the primary motive of those scholars and politicians who deny that massive genocide campaigns were carried out against American Indians. And second, on occasion, the desire, the desire excuse me, to continue carrying out the virulent racist assaults upon those who were the victims of the genocide in question, as seems to be the major purpose of the anti-Semitic so-called historical revisionists, who claim that the Jewish Holocaust never happened or that its magnitude has been exaggerated. But for those who have themselves been victims of extermination campaigns to proclaim uni uniqueness for their experiences, only as a way of denying recognition to others who have also suffered massive genocidal brutalities is to play into the hands of the brutalizers, 
Rather, as Michael Berenbaum has wisely put it, we should let our sufferings, however incommensurate, unite us in condemnation of inhumanity rather than divide us in a calculus of calamity. Noam Chomsky once observed that, if you take any two historical events and ask whether there are similarities and differences, the answer is always going to be both yes and no. At some sufficiently fine level of detail, there will be differences, and at some sufficiently abstract level, there will be simil similarities. The key question for most historical investigations, however, is whether the level at which there are similarities is, in fact, a significant one. Among all the cases of genocide mentioned above there were, we have noted, some important differences. Indeed, in the most technical particulars, the differences among them may well outweigh the similarities. But there were and are certain similarities of sig significance in between the Jewish Holocaust and the Euro-American genocide against the Indians of the Americas, one of those similarities involves the element of religion, where Despreza's preference for the word demonic resides most appropriately. And here, in considering the role of religion in these genocides, there is no better place to begin than with the words of Elie Wiesel, a fact that is not without some irony since for years Wiesel has argued passionately for complete historical uniqueness of the Jewish Holocaust. In seeking at least a partial answer to the question posed at the start of this chapter, what are these people? An observation of Wiesel's regarding the perpetrators of the Jewish Holocaust is an equally apt beginning for those who would seek to understand the motivations that ignited and fanned the, the flames of the mass destruction of the Americas' native peoples. All the killers were Christian. The Nazi system was the consequence of a movement of ideas and followed a strict logic. It did not arise in a void but had its roots deep in a tradition that prophesied it, prepared for it, and brought it to maturity. That tradition was inseparable from the past of Christian civilized Europe. Indeed, despite an often expressed contempt for Christianity, in Mein Kampf, Hitler had written that his plan for a triumphant Nazism was modeled on the Catholic Church's traditional tenacious adherence to dogma and its fanatical intolerance, particular, particularly in the Church's past, when, as Arno J. Mayer has noted, Hitler observed approvingly that in building its own altar, Christianity had not hesitated to destroy the altars of the heathen. Had Hitler required supporting evidence for this contention, he would, have needed, he would have needed to look no further than the Puritans' godly justifications for exterminating New England's Indians in the 17th century, or before that, the sanctimonious Spanish legitimation of genocide, as ordained by Christian truth in 15th and 16th century Meso and South America. It is worth noting also that the Fuhrer from time to time expressed admiration for the efficiency of the American genocide campaign against the, the Indians, viewing it as a forerunner for his own plans and programs. But the roots of the tradition run far deeper than that. Back to the Middle Ages and before, when at least part of the Christians' willingness to destroy the infidels who lived in what was considered to be a spiritual wilderness was rooted in a rapid need to kill the sinful wilderness that lived within themselves. To understand the horrors that were inflicted by Europeans and white Americans on the Indians of the Americas, it is necessary to begin with a look at the core of European thought and culture, Christianity. 
and in particular its ideas on sex and race and violence. Popular thought long has viewed pre-Christian Rome as a Bacchanalian Eden of the unrepressed, in one historian's words, and a similar impression is often held of ancient Greece as well. Neither view is correct. In Greece, virginity was treasured, and a young unmarried woman discovered in the act of sex could legally be sold into slavery. Given that this is the only situation in which a Salonian law allows a free Athenian to be reduced to slavery, writes Gilesism, it is clear that premarital sexual activity constituted an extremely serious threat to the laws governing relationships within and among families. Athena herself, it is worth recalling, was not only a, a goddess of war, but also a virgin, a symbolic juxtaposition of characteristics that, as we shall see, was destined to resonate through many centuries of Western culture. And in Rome, no less than a light than Cicero observed that since the great excellence of man's nature, above that of the brutes and all other creatures, is founded on the fact that brutes are insensible to everything but pleasure, and they will risk everything to attain it. From this we are to conclude that the mere pursuits of sensual gratification are unworthy the excellency of man's nature, and that they ought therefore to be despised and rejected, but that if a man shall have a small pleasure, he ought to be extremely cautious in what manner he, ind he indulges it. We, therefore, in the nourishment and dress of our bodies, ought to consult not our pleasure, but our health and our strength, and we should examine the excellency and dignity of our nature. We should then be made sensible how shameful man's life is when it melts away in pleasure, in voluptuousness, and, eff and effeminacy, and how noble it is to live with abstinence, with modesty, with strictness, with sobriety. The idea is hardly a Christian invention, then, that immoderate enjoyment of the pleasures of the flesh belongs to the, to the world of the brute, and that abstinence, modesty, strictness, and sobriety are to be treasured above all else. Still, it is understandable why subsequent European thought would regard Greece and Rome as realms of carnal indulgence, since subsequent European thought was dominated by Christian ideology. And as the world of the, of the Christian fathers became the world of the church triumphant, while fluid and contested mythologies hardened into dogmatic theology, certain fundamental characteristics of Christianity, often derived from the teachings of Paul, came to express themselves in fanatical form. Not the least of these was the coming to dominance of an Augustinian notion of sex as sin, and sin as sexual, along with the larger sins, as Elaine Pagels puts it, that all of humanity was hopelessly sick, suffering, and helpless. As late antiquity in Europe began falling under the moral control of Christians, there occurred what historian Jacques Legoff has called la déroute de corporal, the route of the body. Not only was human flesh thenceforth to be regarded as corrupt, but so was the very nature of humankind and, indeed, so was nature itself, so corrupt, in fact, that only a rigid authoritarianism could be trusted to govern men and women who, since the fall of Adam and Eve, have been permanently poisoned with an inability to govern themselves in a fashion acceptable to God. At its heart, Christianity expressed a horror at the tainting of godliness with sexuality. Some early Christian fathers, such as Origen, 
had taken literally the prophet Matthew's charge 19.11.12, that there be eunuchs, which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, and castrated themselves. Such self-mutilating behavior finally was condemned by the church in the 4th century as being excessive and unnecessary. Thenceforward, celibacy would be sufficient. But then this too was carried to extremes. St. Paul had in Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-9 to that, It is good for a man not to touch a woman, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Even marital sex invariably was infected with lust, however, so there, de so there developed in Christian culture the anachronistic institution of sexless so-called chaste marriage, and it endured with some popularity for nearly a thousand years. As Peter Brown has pointed out, however, perhaps the most remarkable thing about what he calls this grand ref refuto or great renunciation was that it quickly became the basis for male leadership in the church. One key to understanding this phenomenon is located in the contrast between Judaism at the time and its radical offshoot of Christianity. For as Brown notes, in the very centuries when the rabbinate rose to prominence in Judaism by accepting marriage as a near compulsory criterion of the wise, the leaders of the Christian communities moved in the diametrically opposite direction. Access to leadership became identified with near compulsory celibacy. The Christian leader then stood apart from all others by making a public statement that in fact focused enormous attention on sexuality. Indeed, sexuality became a highly charged symbolic marker exactly because its dramatic removal as a central activity of, of life allowed the self-proclaimed saintly individual to present himself as the ideal of the single-hearted person, the person whose heart belonged only to God. Of course, such fanatically aggressive opposition to sex can only occur among people who are, who are fanatically obsessed with sex, and nowhere was this more ostentatiously evident than in the lives of the early Christian hermits. Sometime around the middle of the 3rd century, the holiest of Christian holy men decided that the only way to tame their despicable sexual desires was to remove themselves completely from the world of others. Moving to the desert, they literally declared war on their sexual selves first by reducing their intake of food to near starvation levels. When one wants to take a town, one cuts off the supply of water and food, wrote a sainted monastic named John the Dwarf. The same military strategy, he continued, applies to the passions of the flesh. If a man lives a life of fasting and hunger, the enemies of his soul are weakened. Weakened, perhaps, but never, it seems, defeated. On the contrary, the more these godly hermits tried to drive out thoughts of sex, the more they were tortured by, des by desire. Thus, when one young monk, Palladius, re reported to an older one, Pachon, that he was thinking of leaving the desert because no matter what he did, desire filled his thoughts night and day, and he was increasingly tormented by visions of women, the old man replied that after forty years of exile and isolation in the desert, he too still suffered the same intolerable urges. He said that between the ages of 50 and 70, he had not spent a single night or day without desiring a woman. But try he and the others did with maniacal obsessiveness. Alain Roussel provides a few examples. Ammonius used to burn his body with a red-hot iron every time he felt sexual desire. Pachon shut himself in a hyena's den, 
hoping to die sooner than you. And then, he, and then he held him asp against his genital organs. Evagrius spent many nights in a frozen well. Philoromus wore irons. One hermit agreed one night to take in a woman who was lost in the desert. He left his light burning on all night and burned his fingers on it to remind himself of eternal punishment. A monk who had treasured the memory of a very beautiful, beautiful woman, when he heard that she was dead, went over and dippled his coat in her decomposed body and lived with the smell to help him fight his constant thoughts of beauty. But let St. Jerome describe for himself the masochistic joys of, of desert exile. There I sat, solitary, full of bitterness. My disfigured limbs shuddered away from the sackcloth. My dirty skin was taken on the hue of the Ethiopian's flesh. Everyday tears, every day sighing. And if in spite of my struggles, sleep would tower over and sink upon me, my battered body ached on the naked earth. Of food and drink I say nothing, since even a sink monk uses only cold water, and to take anything cooked is a wanton luxury. Yet that same I, who for fear of, who, who for fear of hell condemned myself to such a prison, I, the comrade of scorpions and wild beasts, was there, watching the maidens in their dances, my face haggard with fasting, my mind burnt with desire in my frigid body, and the fires of lust alone leaped before a man prematurely dead. So destitute of all aid, I used to lie at the feet of Christ, watering them with my tears, wiping them with my hair, struggling to subdue my rebellious flesh with seven days' fasting. Extreme, though such thoughts and behavior may seem today, in the early days of Christianity, when the seeds of faith were being nurtured into dogma, such activities characterized the entire lives of thousands of the most saintly and honored men. During the 4th century, about 5,000 holy ascetics, about 5,000 holy ascetics lived in the desert of Nitria, with thousands more tormenting themselves around, Ant around Antinoe, in the Tibiad at Hermopolis and elsewhere. Indeed, so popular did the life of the sex-denying hermits become among Christian men, that in time it was difficult to find sufficient isolation to live the true hermit's life. They began to live in small groups, and then eventually in organized monasteries. Here, because of the closeness of other bodies, carnal temptation was more difficult to suppress. The institution did what it could to assist, however. Rules were, rules were instituted prohibiting the locking of cell doors to discourage masturbation. It was forbidden for two monks to speak together in the dark, to ride a donkey together, or to approach any closer than an arm's length away. They were to avoid looking at each other as much as, as possible. They were required to keep their knees covered when sitting in a group and they were admonished against lifting their tunics any higher than was absolutely necessary when washing their clothes. Although sex was at the core of such commitments to self-denial, it was not all that the saintly Christian rejected. Indeed, what distinguished the Christian saint from other men, said the early church fathers, was the Christian's recognitions of the categorical difference and fundamental opposition between things of the spirit and things of the world. The two realms were utterly incompatible with the, with the results as the episode to Diognetus, that the flesh hates the soul and wages war upon it, though it has suffered no evil,
because it is prevented from gratifying its pleasures. And the world hates the Christians, though it has suffered no evil, because they are opposed to its pleasures. In demonstrating their opposition to the world's proffered pleasures, some monks wrap themselves in iron chains in order that they might never forget their proper humility, while others adopted the life of animals, writes Henry Chadwick. Henry Chadwick, in Fed on Grass, living in the open air without shade from the sun and with the minimum of clothing. Still others, such as St. Simeon Stylites, displayed his asceticism by living his life on top of a column. By doing so, he not only won the deep reverence of the country people, but he also inspired later imitators like Daniel, 409-493, who spent 33 years on a column near Constantinople. During those same first centuries of the church's existence, some paragons of the faith took to literal extremes the scriptural charge of love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, by flinging themselves into what Augustine was to call the daily sport of suicide, and by searching for ways to become Ignatius's long for fodder for wild beasts. Suicide, like, cast like castration, in time was discouraged by the church as a best institutionally counterproductive. But the idea of flesh as corruption and of the physical pleasures of the world as sin continued to evolve over the centuries by the Middle Ages flourishing into a full-fledged full ideology that came to be known as the contemptus mundi, or contempt for the world, tradition. All of life on earth was properly seen as a veil of tears, as a desert, an exile. As one medieval saint, Jean de Fagan exclaimed, human life was and should be viewed as miserable life, decrepit life, impure life, sullied by humors, exhausted by grief, dried by heat, swollen by meats, mortified by fasts, dissolved by pranks, consumed by sadness, distressed by worries, blunted by security, bloated by riches, cast down by poverty. The torment of life lay, therefore, not only in its pains, but equally, if perversely, in its pleasures that systematically had to be both resisted and condemned. Thus, an anonymous 12th-century poet confronted himself with the riddle. Evil life of this world, then, why do you please me so? And answered piously with the following litany. Fugitive life, more harmful than any beast. Life which should be called death, which one should hate, not love. Worldly, worldly life, a sickly thing, more fragile than the rose. Worldly life, source of labors, anguish full of suffering. Worldly life, future death, permanent ruin. Worldly life, evil thing, never worthy of love. Worldly life, foul life, pleasing only to the impious. Life, st stupid thing, accepted only by fools. I reject you with all my heart, for you are full of filth. With all my heart, I reject you. I prefer to undergo death, O life, rather than serve you. A century later, the poet and Franciscan monk, Giacomo de Verona expressed the matter of humanity's proper Christian understanding of itself in similar, if even more piety, terms. In a very dirty and vile workroom, you are made out of slime, so foul and so wretched that my lips cannot bring themselves to tell you about it. But if you have a bit of sense, you will know that the fragile body in which you lived, where you were tormented eight months and more, was made of rotting and corrupt excrement. You came out through a foul passage, and you fell into the world poor and naked. 
other creatures have some use, meat and bone, wool and leather. But you, stinking man, you are worse than dung. From you, man, comes only pus. From you comes no virtue. You are a sly and evil traitor. Look in front of you and look behind, for your life is like your shadow, which quickly comes and quickly goes. In response to learned and saintly medieval urgings of this sort, the efforts of good Christians to purge themselves of worldly concerns and carnal impulses became something truly to behold, something that had its roots in the asceticism of the early church fathers of almost a thousand years earlier, and something that would persist among the faithful for centuries yet to come. Norman Cohen has provided us with one vivid, though not untypical, example by quoting an account from the 14th century when, on a winter's night, a devout friar shut himself up in his cell and stripped himself naked and took his scourge with the sharp spikes and beat himself on the body and on the arms and legs till blood poured off of him as from a man who has been cupped. One of the spikes on the scourge was bent crooked like a hook and whatever flesh it caught tore it off. He beat himself so hard that the scourge broke into three bits and the points flew against the wall. He stood there bleeding and gazed at himself. It was such a wretched sight that he was reminded in many ways of the appearance of the beloved Christ when he was fearfully beaten. Out of pity for himself, he began to weep bitterly, and he knelt down, naked and covered in blood, in the frosty air, and prayed to God to wipe out his sin from before his gentle eyes. Monks and other males were not the only devout souls of this time who tried to work their way to heaven with self-flagellation and other forms of personal abasement. In fact, if anything, women showed more originality than men in their undertakings of, humi of humiliation. In addition to the routine of self-flagellation and the commitment of themselves to, to crippling and sometimes fatal bouts of purposeful starvation, would-be female saints drank pus or scabs from leprous sores, eating and incorporating disease reports a recent study on the subject, and in the frenzy of trance or ecstasy, pious women sometimes mutilated themselves with knives. One such holy woman displayed her piety by sleeping on a bed of paving stones, whipping herself with chains, and wearing a crown of thorns. As Caroline Walker Bynum dryly remarks, reading the lives of 14th and 15th century women saints greatly expands one's knowledge of Latin synonyms for whip, thong, flail, chain, etc. Ascetic practices commonly reported in these vitae include wearing hair shorts, binding the flesh tightly with twisted ropes, rubbing lice into self-inflicted wounds, denying oneself sleep, adulterating food and water with ashes or salt, performing thousands of genuflections, thrusting nettles into one's breasts, and praying barefoot in winter. Among the more bizarre female behaviors were rolling in broken glass, jumping into ovens, hanging from a gibbet, and praying upside down. Such behavior was motivated primarily by the now traditional Christian compulsion, compulsion to, to deny and to rout the pleasures of the flesh, and by doing so, to accentuate the importance of the spirit. For by this time, the sundering of the mundane from the spiritual, the profane from the sacred, was a well-established characteristic of European Christian culture. But by listening closely, Bynum has shown that the sounds of other promptings to asceticism can be discerned as well. These additional, not alternative, explanations for such extreme performances include straightforward efforts to escape the restrictions and menial activities dictated by life and authoritarian Christian families and communities. This was a motive particularly likely 
among women living in a harshly misogynist world. Women who, by becoming acknowledged saints and mystics, were able to use the institution of chaste marriage to negotiate non-sexual relationships for themselves during an era when sexual marriage could be an extraordinary brutal institution. And, and women who, when all else failed, sometimes were accidentally to drop an unwanted infant into the fire during a trance of mythical ecstasy. To be sure, much as its priesthood fondly wanted it to be, Christianity never was able to become an entirely totalitarian religion. During the 13th and 14th centuries in particular, some citizens of Europe found for themselves cultural pockets of at least some sensual freedom. What these exceptions almost invariably demonstrate, however, is that once European sexual mores and attitudes towards the body had been shaped under the anvil of early Christian asceticism, whatever variations those mores and attitudes underwent during the course of time, they always were variations that remained partially embedded in that repressive ideal. As a culture, the Christian West never was and still is not at ease with sexuality. Thus, even on those short-lived occasions where erotic repression relaxed for a time, the emerging liberatory impulse indulged in by a relative few invariably had about it an almost desperate quality of both flamboyance and risk. When a few women of prominence in certain parts of Europe during the 14th century felt free for a time to express themselves sexually, for example, no doubt, as part of the breakdown in Christian morality that came in the, in the aftermath of the Black Death, they did it by ostentatiously exposing their breasts, applying rouge or jewels caps to their nipples and sometimes piercing their nipples so as to hang gold chains from them. If this fashion was a bit extreme for some, an alternative was to cover up as little as possible of one's breasts and then push them up and out. The result, according to one observer, was to make two horns on their bosom very high up and, art and artificially projected toward the, the front, even when nature has not endowed them with such important advantages. Such determinedly or frantically, erotic fashion statements were never the rule for many, of course, and for those few who did indulge in them, the lifespan of the vogue was short, for constantly lurking everywhere was the dominant moral code of the church. As John Bromyard, an approximate contemporary of those rogue-nippled 14th century would-be libertines and their male com companions born, in place of scented baths, their bodies shall have a narrow pit in the earth. And there they shall have a bath more foul than any bath of pitch and sulfur. In place of a soft couch, they shall have a bed more grievous and hard than all the nails and spikes in the world. Instead of wives, they shall have toads. Instead of a great retinue and a throng of followers, their body shall have a, a throng of worms, and their soul is a throng of demons. Bromyard's reference to scented baths is also telling. Inspired by the examples of Muslims living in Spain during the 12th and 13th centuries, public baths slowly spread throughout Europe during the course of the next 200 years. By the turn of the 14th century, Paris, for instance, had about two dozen public baths. In some of them, a visitor might encounter what the, Itali what the Italian writer Poggio did on a visit to Zurich in the early 15th century. Partially clad men and women singing and drinking and young girls already ripe for marriage in the fullness of their nubile forms, standing and moving like goddesses, their garments forming a, flo a floating train on the surface of the, of the waters. By the end of the 15th century, however, the baths were being closed throughout Europe. Within half a century more, they were gone. 
The Spanish, in particular, had never supported regular bathing, public or, or otherwise, associating it with Islam and thus regarding it as a mere cover for Mohammedan ritual and sexual promiscuity. Similarly, brothels had been tolerated and even given municipal institutional status in some European communities during the 14th and early 15th century. But just as bathhouses were being closed by authorities in the 1470s, so too were the brothels. Like the public baths, open brothels effectively had disappeared by the mid-16th century. As for bare-breasted or other revealing fashions, they also quickly became a thing of the past. Spain led the way here as the 15th century was drawing to a close. Mantles or mantos for women became the approved attire. Hans Peter Dewar notes, and they completely en en enveloped the female figure, leaving only a small people. Black became the color of choice. The expression of the face froze into a mask. Bodices had iron staves sewed into them. Even the hint of a bosom was shunned. Lead plates served to keep breasts flat and to impede their development. In other parts of Europe, there was even a return to the medieval caps and chin bands, Dewar writes, revealing nothing of the hair beneath. Behind the shift back to traditional Christian denial of the body and rejection of things sexual, says Ion P. Quiliano, was the persistent ideology that women is the blind instrument for seduction of nature, the symbol of temptation, sin, and evil. Besides her face, the, the principal baits of her allure are the signs of her, for, her fertility, hips and breasts. The face, alas, must stay exposed, but it is possible for it to wear a rigid and manly expression. The neck can be en enveloped in a high lace collar. As to the bosom, the treatment dealt it closely resembles the traditional deformation of the feet of Chinese women, being no less painful and unhealthy. Natural femininity, overflowing, voluptuous, and sinful, is categorized as unlawful. Henceforth, only witches will dare to have wide hips, prominent breasts, conspicuous buttocks, and long hair. Coliano's passing reference to witches in this context is worth pausing over, for it is precisely here that Christianity, and in particular the, the Christianity that structured life, culture, and ideas at the time that Columbus was making ready his plans to sail to Cathay, located the only proper home in the contemporary world for nudity and, er and eroticism. Both of the major texts on the witchcraft produced at this time, Jacob Springer's famous Malaya's Maleficarum in 1486 and Fray Martin de Castanegas' Tratado de las Supersticiones y Hechicherias in 1529 observe that all witchcraft comes from carnal lust. Indeed, the literature and imagery relating to witchcraft border on the pornographic, Culiano says. The inhibitions of an entire era rep repression of repression are poured into it. All possible and impossible perversions are ascribed to witches and their fiendish partners. Perversions, both heterosexual and homosexual, for as Jeffrey Burton Russell has noted, one, common, one commonplace allegation that appears again and again in witchcraft trials was the charge of sodomy. The ritualized gatherings of witches in Europe during this time were known as synagogues and later as sabbats, both terms, of course, derived from Judaism, which was itself regarded as a form of devil worship. There are numerous supposed accounts of such gatherings. The so-called Great European Witch Hunt 
was building toward its peak by the end of the 15th century. But Norman Cohn has put together a representative collage of what Christians from this time believed took place during the typical witch's salat. The salat was presided over by the devil, who now took on the shape not of a mere man, but of a monstrous being, half man and half goat, a hideous black man with enormous horns, a goat's beard and goat's legs. First the witches knelt down and prayed to the devil, calling him Lord and God, and repeating their renunciation of the Christian faith, after which each in turn kissed him, often on his, on his left foot, his genitals, or his anus. Next, del delinquent witches reported for punishment, which usually consisted of whippings. Then came the parody of divine service. Dressed in black vest vestments with mitre and surplice, the devil would preach a sermon, warning his followers against reverting to Christianity and promising them a far more blissful paradise than the Christian heaven. The proceedings ended in a climax of profanity. Once more, the witches adored the devil and kissed his anus. F finally, an orgiastic dance to the sound of trumpets, drums, and fifes. The witches would form a circle, facing outwards, and dance around a witch bent over, her head touching the, the ground, with a candle stuck in her anus to serve as, as illumination. The dance would become a frantic and erotic orgy in which all things, including sodomy and incest, were permitted. At the height of the orgy, the devil would copulate with every man, woman, and child present. Needless to say, sex with Satan, or even with one or more of the incubator's succubi who assisted him was not something one easily forgot. Nicholas Remy, a 16th century expert on these matters, he, he had made a 15-year study of, of, of approximately 900 witchcraft trials, reported to an eager Christian public the experiences, recounted in official testimony of some witches who had endured the ordeal. Canessa asserts that his squats board, these were the names of succubi, gave him the impression of having a frozen hole instead of a, vag a vagina, and that he had to withdraw before having an orgasm. As to witches, they declare that the virile organs of demons are so thick and hard that it is impossible to be penetrated by them without dreadful pain. Alice Dreguet compared her demon's erect penis with a kitchen tool, she pointed out, to the assembly, and gave the information that the former lacked scrotum and testicles. As to Claudine Fillet, she knew how to avoid the piercing pain of such intercourse by a rotary movement she often performed in order to introduce that erect mass, which no woman, of no matter what, cap what capacity, could have contained. And nevertheless, there are some who reach orgasm in this cold and loathsome embrace. It is not hard to imagine the effect, or indeed, the function, of, of listening to this sort of thing day in and day out among people adamantly committed to intense sexual repression as the fundamental key to eternal salvation. In the event that verbal description might prove insufficient, however, artistic works abounded, depicting the witch's sabbats. So thrilling, so too, of course, were visual representations of readily of valuable of the horrendous post-mortem fate, including violent assaults by demons on the genitals. That was in store for ordinary mortals who might have succumbed to the temptations of lust and, and lechery. There was, however, a third artistic genre in which sexual behavior was often central, depictions of the long-lost golden age. Thus, in the midst of the 16th century's culture of sexual denial, Agostino Caracci, among others, 
could openly depict explicit and voluptuous sensuality and eroticism so long as it was labeled love in the golden age and contained appended verses with language life. As the palm is a sign of victory, so the, fr the fruit of congenial love is that sweetness from which produced the seed, from which is produced the seed, whence nature and heaven are glorified. By definition, of course, the golden age belonged safely to the past, although there was always the very real possibility that displaced remnants of it existed and could be found in distant parts of the world that had not yet been explored. If somewhere on the Earth's outer fringes there lay a land of demigods and milk and honey, however, there also lurked in distant realms demi-brutes who lived carnal and savage lives in a wilderness controlled by Satan. Which, which one, if either, of these a medieval or renaissance explorer was likely to find? Only time and experience would tell. Contrary to a notion that has become fashionable among American his historians, the concept of race was not invented in the late 18th or 19th century. Indeed, systems of categorical generalization that separated groups of people according to social constructions of race, sometimes based on skin color, sometimes with reference to other attributes, and ranked them as to disposition and, and intelligence, were in use in Europe at least a thousand years before Columbus set off across the Atlantic. Even a thousand years earlier than that, says historian of ancient Greece Kurt von Fritz, since it was, he contends, during the time of Hippocrates in the 4th century BC, that race theory first raised its head. Others might argue for an earlier date still, but it certainly is true, as Fritz points out, that from Hippocrates to Callistenes to Poseidonius several centuries later, the concept was elaborated and refined until it was held that not only the populations of different continents constituted different races, but every tribe or nation had its racial characteristics, <clears throat> which were the product of hereditary factors, climate, diet, training, and traditions. <clears throat> As a consequence of this, Poseidonius contended, the behavior of individuals and groups was attributable to a, ver to a variety of, of factors, one of which was their racial character. Moreover, as Orlando Patterson has shown, strong racial ant antipathy was not uncommon in Rome, and in particular, Negro features were not an asset in the slave-holding societies of the Greco-Roman world. Long before this era, however, at least as early as the late 8th century BC, Homer and Hesiod and other Greek poets were describing a time, as A. Bartlett Giamatti put it, when Kronos reigned and the world was young, age of the golden race and said it still existed to the north in the land of the Scythians and the Hyperboreans. The poets were not alone in speaking and writing of these fortunate island, islands of delight, repose, and physical bliss. For as poets sang of this happy place, ancient geographers and historians charted and described it, sight unseen, save with the mind's eye. Unseen, perhaps, but there was no doubt that the earthly paradise was an actual place situated in a distant realm, a group of islands or a peaceful plain at the end of the earth. As, Men as Menela was promised in the Odyssey, it is not your fate to die in Argus, to meet your end in the grazing land of heroes. The deathless ones will waft you instead to the world's end, the Elysian fields where the yellow-haired Radamanthus is. There indeed men live unlaborious days. Snow and tempests and thunderstorms never enter there, but for men's refreshment, ocean sends out the continually high-singing breezes of the west. <clears throat> in other traditions, the Elysian fields were in the islands of the blessed, where, according to Hesiod, 
there lived the fourth age of men, the godly race of the heroes who were called demigods, to whom Zeus had granted a life and home apart from men, and settled him at the ends of the earth. And still t today, says Heshiod, there they dwell with carefree hearts in the Isle of the Blessed Ones, beside deep-swirling Oceanus, fortunate heroes, for whom the grain-giving soil bears its honey-sweet fruits thrice a year. These were demigods, because they were half-god, half-human, descended from unions between gods and mortal women. Their existence had been preceded by that of three other races. First, there were the golden race of people who lived like gods with carefree hearts, remote from toil and misery, and who at the end of their reign were transformed into divine spirits, watchers over mortal men, bestowers of wealth. Then there followed the, the silver race, much inferior to the golden race, but still they too have honor. The third race, the race of bronzemen, was a terrible and fierce race, characterized by violence and a lack of agriculture, a clear sign of civilization's absence, a people who ate only meat and whatever grew wild. They were unshapen hulks with great strength and indescribable arms growing from their shoulders above their, their, their stalwart bodies. They did not have iron, or at least they did not know how to work it, and they, and they now lived in chill Hades' house of decay. The present is located in the fifth age, the age of the race of Iron Man. In terms of moral character, the world of Hesiod's Iron Race contemporaries seems to have been situated somewhere between that of the deformed and violent and primitive bronze race and that of the demigods who lived in the Blessed Isles, although troubled with vice and selfishness and, dis and dishonesty. At least the Iron Race is civilized, though in time it is too fated to be abandoned by the gods because of its insistent sinfulness. However, as Giamatti notes, Hesiod later introduces the notions of justice and morality as paths that mortal men and women can choose to follow and in which a kind of golden age is open to those who deserve it by their just and virtuous lives. Neither war, nor famine, nor blight will fall upon those whose communities select the path of virtue. For them, earth bears plentiful food, and on the mountains, the oak carries acorns at the surface and bees as its center. The fleecy sheep are laden down with wool. The women folk bear children, bear children that resemble their parents. They enjoy a continual sufficiency of good things. Nor do they plow on ships, but the grain-giving plowland bears them fruit. This is about as close as humans are likely to get to a paradise on earth. For those who occupy themselves with violence and wickedness and brutal deeds, however, godly retribution is in store. Disaster, famine, and with it plague, and the people waste away. The women folk do not give birth, and households decline. The theme evolved from Greek and to Roman thought, and, as Giamatti observes, the note of morality, of virtue and its reward as a choice humans could make, rendered Golden Age places safe for Christian adaptation. In time, Christianity did indeed integrate the idea into its own ideology. Although in Christian legend the terrestrial paradise was linked to the Garden of Eden, as Giamatti says, Early Christian descriptions of the earthly paradise owed as much to ancient literature as to Christian biblical literature, and finally the two strands became inseparable. Whatever the variations imposed by the, the different European cultures that adopted it, the terrestrial paradise was always a place linked to the past, but still existing somewhere on the other side of the world in, in the present, a place of simpl simplicity, innocence, harmony, love, and happiness. Where the climate is balmy and the fruits of nature's bounty are found on the trees year-round. Other, less pleasant realms and their inhabitants existed in distant lands as well. 
However, for among, for mixed in among the various races of the world, was a special category of being collectively known as the monstrous races. They are described in the writings of Homer, Tesias, Megasthenes, and others dating back to at least as far as the 8th century BC, along with earlier parallels that can be found in the ancient Near East. But the first major compilation describing the appearance and character of the different monstrous races was, the, was that of Pliny the Elder in his first century AD, Natural History. In 36 volumes, Pliny soberly and seriously informs his readers about the existence of different peoples living in far-off lands whose feet are turned backwards, whose upper or lower lips are so large that they curl them back over their heads to use as umbrellas, who walk upside down, who walk on all fours, who are covered with hair, who have no mounds and nourish themselves by smelling their food, who have neither heads nor necks and whose faces are embedded in their chests, who have one eye, or three or four, who have the heads of dogs and breathe flames, who have only one leg on which they, never, they nevertheless run very fast, a, a leg containing an enormous foot that they use to shield themselves from the sun, who are gigantic or miniature in size, who have six fingers or six hands, who have hooves instead of feet, whose ears are so long that they use them as blankets, and more. Other such alien races have women who conceive at age five and die by the time they are eight, or children who are born, who are born with white hair that gradually turns to black as they grow older. It is important to recognize that these creatures were truly believed to exist, and to exist not in some supernatural or demonic realm, but within the larger context of humanity, if often on its outermost margins. Beyond the matter of gross indifference in physical type and biological characteristics in general, the monstrous races were, in, were, dis, were distinguishable by cultural patterns that varied from, Euro, from European ideals. They spoke strangely. Barbarians were, after all, literally barbarophonoi, or those whose speech sounded like barbar to Greek ears. They ate and drank strange foods and potions, from insects to human flesh to dogs' milk. They went about unclothed, or if clothed, they were usually covered by animal skins. They used crude weapons of war, clubs or other wooden objects, or they were ignorant of weaponry altogether. And they lived in small communities, not urban environments and thus were largely un ungoverned by laws. Once integrated into Christian thinking, the monstrous races came to be associated with the lineage of Cain. That is, they were actual creatures whose strangeness was part of their deserved suffering because of their progenitor sin. Whether Greeks, Romans, or medieval Christians, moreover, the Europeans of all eras considered themselves to be chosen people, the inhabitants of the center and most civil domain of human life. The further removed from that center, anything in nature was the further it was removed from God, from virtue, and from the highest essence of humanity. Thus, the fact that the monstrous races were said to live on the distant extremes of the earthly realm was one crucial element in their radical otherness, and also in their being defined as fundamentally unvirtuous and base. So great was their alienation from the world of gods, or the gods' most favored people, in fact, that well into late antiquity they, they commonly were denied the, the label of men. This eventually became a problem for Christianity, eager as the faith was to convert all humanity to God's revealed truth. The classic statement of the early church on this matter was the work of Augustine who, in the City of God, affirmed that whoever is born anywhere as a human being, that is, as a rational mortal creature, however strange he may appear to our senses in bodily form or color or motion or utterance, or in any fac faculty, part or quality of his nature whatsoever, 
Let no true believer have any doubt that such an individual is descended from the, from the one man who was first created. Though often regarded as a fairly unambiguous statement of support for the humanity of distant peoples, Augustine's linking of humanity to 